Well, if you're a guest with us, we're just delighted to have you here with us this morning. We're in a study of the Gospel of uh, Mark, and if you will, uh, and have, if you have a Bible there or want to grab one, we're in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse uh, 20. And as you turn there, um, pray with me. Gracious Lord, we come to you uh, in weakness. Both uh, we are weak in our ability to hear and to attend and to receive, and the one who speaks is weak in speech. And so come and meet us in our weakness. Come and open our eyes to behold wondrous things here. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him. And said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Well, some people provoke a reaction. In fact, there are people in every public sphere that do this. You can just think through the world of sports and realize people don't just react to teams, especially dominant teams, but especially sometimes dominant uh, players. Some people think Tom Grady is the is the best quarterback that ever lived, the greatest of all times, and they just... Well, they just really adore him, and other people cannot tolerate him. It just awakens a reaction in them. It's amazing how many people like this play team sports, especially uh, at the national level. They just seem to want all the glory uh, for themselves. No one has provoked more reactivity than Jesus Christ. The Bible says that what you think about him and your response to him is the most important decision you have to make. 
And uh, Mark has written this gospel in order uh, to call you to respond to Jesus. He's already told you what he thinks of Jesus as he uh, begins. He tells you that he sees him as uh, the divine man king, uh, the son of God, the Christ uh, that was promised. But he lets you see all the options as he shows you the various people interacting with Jesus. And um, in the third chapter, we see the crowds who view Jesus as a miracle worker. We see the apostles as he's someone to follow. Uh, His family thinks he's out of his mind. And the scribes think of him as an emissary of the dark uh, realm, that he's uh, an ally of uh, Satan. And it's to this we want to turn our attention this morning Because several times already in Mark's gospel, and we'll continue to see this, Jesus confronts uh, these dark uh, spirits. Just who are they? What are they? Uh, What are we to make of them? Uh, Are they still present? And if so, are we called to join Jesus in that conflict? Well, Mark wants us to see the reality of spiritual warfare. And this uh, reality raises all kinds of questions, not all of which I'll be able to touch on this morning. The scribes, as they uh, are convinced that what Jesus is doing arises out of the supernatural world, have become increasingly hardened in their view of Jesus. They believe that he's possessed uh, by the prince of demons, which is just another name uh, for Satan. Now, the Bible teaches there is an unseen spiritual uh, realm and that Satan is uh, the chief agent of evil and God's arch enemy. And below Satan, there are numerous other dark spiritual beings, fallen angels, demons, unclean spirits. They're all the same. And they are cosmic rulers. And on a macro uh, level, Uh, uh, They uh, create within human beings mindsets, ideologies, uh, prejudices. Uh, They foster uh, hatred and hostility uh, between peoples, uh, between people groups, between nations. They propagate a set of values that ultimately corrupt uh, human life. And to the end, that humanity is in a state of active and passive rebellion against uh, God. And as a result, we don't experience the life God intends. They also function at a a micro scale. They affect individuals. Sometimes their involvement is displayed in antisocial behavior or violence. Other times it's manifested as various kinds of illness. And the gospel writers distinguish illnesses that are demonic in origin and those that are organic in origin as well as they produce a bondage to various uh, behaviors, uh, various uh, things that enslave. That's Satan's purpose, is to enslave uh, humanity, to have them uh, wittingly or unwittingly uh, serve his purposes. And the scribes are saying, Jesus, your power is coming from this dark uh, realm, and you're serving Satan's purposes. And Jesus summons them to himself, and uh, he, he says basically three things uh, to them. Uh, he offers a couple of what Mark calls uh, parables here. And the first is he just talks to them in terms of common sense. How can Satan's kingdom survive 
if he's working against his own reign. Does that really make sense for Satan to do that, to assault his own uh, kingdom? Is that really how things uh, work? If Satan wants to take people captive and then he sets them free, isn't he losing ground uh, if, with the human race? If he's doing this, he's finished. And then Jesus speaks uh, a riddle about binding a strong man. Now, the strong man in the riddle is Satan, who's the god of this age, according to the Apostle Paul. And Jewish writings of this time tell us that his main occupation was to deceive the nations and keep people uh, from living in God's way. Jesus uh, says that someone stronger has to bind Satan, the strong uh, man, before his house can be robbed. Jesus is the binder of Satan. He's the true strong man, or if you want, the stronger uh, man. And Jesus, in speaking this way, well, uh, the scribes should have recognized this language from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah speaks of the servant of the Lord in this language. In Isaiah 49, we read, Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob, the Strong One of Jacob. Isaiah 53, the prophet says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercessions for transgressions. And then Jesus began his ministry in Nazareth reading from Isaiah 61, which says in part, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has come to set the prisoners free. Now, one of the things that you might well, you might pick up on here is that it's clear that Jesus is setting Satan's uh, captives free. Uh, and so Jesus has already, in some sense, bound Satan. But there's kind of a paradox here because uh, Satan, the strong man, while being bound by, by one who is stronger, yet is still strong. Um, he's still active. Uh, in the world. It's a little like the trip uh, uh, we took as a family to the zoo when our youngest was uh, really small. She had to be held up uh, to look into the exhibits and see what was uh, going on. And like any child her age, she was immensely curious and enjoying watching the animals well, when we reached the lion's exhibit, they were active, which if you go to zoos a lot, that's really a treat uh, to see them active. And this one uh, let out a chilling roar. And Elizabeth turned her head away and buried it into my chest and just clung tightly. She was 
well, she was frightened. She saw only the lion, but I wasn't frightened because I uh, knew that there was a huge chasm that had been built in this zoo uh, between the lion's exhibit and where we stood and watched. And even though there was a little uh, glass barrier there, you could just see the lion. But the lion couldn't reach us. I knew that. You see, he appeared free, but in fact he was restricted. And for the Christian, Satan's power is bound uh, uh, and it's been broken through the death of Christ on the cross. Christ himself, if you're a Christian, has transferred you uh, from the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom, into the kingdom of uh, his light. And that means while we continue to live in Satan's uh, presence and we experience temptation and attacks and he seeks to make our lives miserable, in Jesus we never need to be under his power. If you're uh, uh, held fast in crippling fears, or you're enslaved to shameful and sinful uh, habits, if you're plagued uh, by recurring uh, thoughts that are uh, perhaps destructive, uh, if you're living in fear of death, then you need but to turn to Jesus Christ, and he will set you uh, free. Jesus states that as the binder of the strong uh, man, uh, that um, he has a power that's not his own. He, he doesn't state it quite so directly. He's answering their charge uh, when he goes on uh, to say in verses 28 and 29, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven to the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, when Jesus uses the word truly here, he's making a very solemn statement. It's really uh, the equivalent of what the prophets said when they said, uh, thus says the Lord, or as I live, thus says uh, the Lord. And Jesus is saying that there's no sins and no blasphemies that can't be forgiven. But then, well, he seems to make an exception. Did you, did you hear it there in verse 29? But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to pay really close attention to the specific circumstances in which Jesus has made this remark. See, he's making it to the learned, to the teachers of the law who were, well, we would think of them as scholars uh, today. They were the academics. They were the respected teachers of Scripture. And they've said that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan because he's possessed by Satan. You see, they uh, see what must clearly be the work of God and have said it's evil, an expression of Satan. You see, they're demonstrating a perversion of spirit, which is in defiance of the grace of God. They're calling good evil and evil good. And to call good evil and evil good when you well know uh, the difference, when you actually full well know that what you're seeing is something good because of your prejudice and hatred, well, is to approach a state where repentance is not possible and where you would never ask for forgiveness. 
See, what Jesus is warning them is this, that if they continue in such, and it becomes the settled condition in their uh, soul, uh, they will have so rejected the grace of God as to put themselves in a place where they will never ask for forgiveness. You see, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not a few words that somebody utters uh, in a moment of anger or frustration. Um, No, it's a permanent attitude, and it's an attitude that can only be held by those who have the knowledge of uh, the truth. Do people commit this? Well, yes, they do. Kent Hughes uh, recounts the story of a, a pastor named Ben Uh, Hayden, uh, who visited the hospital at 3 a.m. one morning to see a friend. The friend was dying. The doctor had told told both uh, Pastor Hayden and that, and uh, he said, I want to have a frank uh, conversation with you uh, now. Um, You know I wouldn't be here if I wasn't your friend, and so I want to know how it is between you and God. Well, the man replied, I've always believed in God and I've uh, sought to uh, live uh, a moral life. Everything between me and God is ship's shape. And Pastor Hayden said, what do you think of Jesus? How is it between you and Jesus? And he said, well, I've never made room for Jesus in uh, my life. To do so uh, would change everything about my life, my philosophy, and how I've gone about uh, living it. And Pastor Hayden replied, do you know why Jesus died? And he said, oh, yes. He died uh, for uh, sins. And he appealed to him. He said, reconsider your position toward Jesus Christ. God in his grace has still given you time to rethink what uh, you uh, believe about Jesus. But the man said, I will not. And he died uh, later that uh, day. If you're here and you are troubled by the thought that perhaps with a word that you have forever closed the possibility of forgiveness. If that's troubling you, I want you to know you have not committed this sin. This sin is a a resolve in your spirit, a determined attitude that does not yield uh, to the gentle work of the spirit and and the call of grace in Christ. If you're here this morning and you haven't responded to that call and you sense the tug of the Holy Spirit, then respond. Do not resist him. It is that resistance that Jesus sees in these uh, scribes. Yield. Do not uh, resist uh, to him. The same offer that Jesus is making here is made to you. That anything you've done in your past no matter how shameful, no matter how uh, dark, no matter how awful, there's forgiveness available uh, to you. Come to Christ. If you haven't done that, come to Christ. Now, Mark's making another point uh, here. It's another main point. And to appreciate it, you need to understand just how it is that Mark is uh, telling uh, the incidents in the life of Jesus. Several times in Mark's gospel, he'll start one incident and then he'll interrupt it with another event and then he'll finish that incident. 
This is, you could call a sandwich. And so the sandwich we read this morning is about Jesus' family. That's verses 20 and 21. They hear that he's not eating his food and they conclude he's out of his mind. And the other a slice of bread, if you will, is the final part where Jesus' family comes to try to seize him and he rebuffs them. And in the middle, the filling, you know, the bacon, lettuce, and tomato, for those of you who are imagining lunch, it'll be barbecue uh, today. It's out there waiting, waiting uh, for you, if you don't know. Um, that filling is the encounter that Jesus has with the scribes. And what Mark is doing in this way is he's telling us that what's in the center sheds light uh, on the interrupted story. In other words, the incident with the scribes sheds light on what's going on with Jesus' family. Both Jesus' family and the scribes have become opponents of the kingdom of God. They're seeking to keep Jesus from carrying out his mission of bringing the fullness of God's reign uh, to people. His family wants to control him. They want to seize him. Uh, they expect him to recognize uh, their claim upon him. They want to set the agenda uh, for his life. They have a different idea about what he should be uh, doing. And uh, clearly he can't make good decisions on his own. That's their view of him. And the scribes want to stop him from freeing demonized uh, people. They want to shut him down completely. And it's important for us to appreciate what's happening here. Jesus is the strong man who cannot be bound. He can't be bound by human uh, agendas. Jesus is the strong man who cannot be bound. And you see, we have to guard against this as a church and as individual Christians, that we can't take over uh, what Jesus is uh, doing. The only people who are his followers are those who are willing to be bound uh, by him and follow him in obedience. Jesus won't be co-opted by us. Now, I'd like to tell you that I've never experienced any temptation to do this, but actually, there's a part of me that really, well, is tempted to think that I should be able to manage what it costs me to serve uh, Christ in, in my calling as a pastor. You see, I sort of tend to think, well, I deserve all the benefits and honor uh, that all you professional people in the church that I serve have. You know, a comfortable lifestyle, a secure uh, retirement, and respect from those I serve. And Jesus doesn't guarantee me that. In fact, Paul uh, shows me rather plainly that, in fact, ministry, the ministry of the gospel, is cruciform. And I shouldn't expect those things. Churches, too, can try to co-op uh, Jesus for a purpose other than his. One of the more common ways that I've seen this happens is that uh, someone or some group of people become owners instead of stewards of the ministry of the church. This happens in congregational churches. Often the congregation sees themselves as owners. It happens in elder-led churches. The elders see themselves as the owners, or sometimes it's the pastor and either of these think of themselves as the owners. And what this means is that their purposes for the church outweigh Jesus' claims on uh, the church. One more example, and it's this early in the 20th century, the much of the church, the mainline uh, 
Protestant uh, churches were co-opted by a liberal political agenda. Now, it's true. Part of the, what happened is, is that they uh, gave up their doctrinal distinctive. They gave up uh, historic Christian orthodoxy. But as George uh, Marsden, the church historian, points out, one of the primary reasons they did that was they saw themselves in ascendancy in the life of America, especially Presbyterians did. Presbyterians were, as we say, punching far beyond their weight. And they wanted to seize the opportunity they had to influence the whole life of the nation. And in order to increase their appeal to people, they embraced a liberal social agenda. But of course, you don't have to advocate uh, for a liberal social agenda and be a part of a church. In fact, church is completely unnecessary to that purpose. And the mainline church has lost millions of people ever since and continues to do so. But here at the beginning of the 21st century, something parallel to this is happening in much of the evangelical church, where it's being co-opted by a political agenda. You see, the nuances about the policy of immigration or what America's foreign policy should be toward uh, uh, Taiwan or Russia or, well, physical policy, these are not central to the task and mission the church has been given. But there are many, many people in the evangelical church who have made it such. And so their sermons are really sermons about political matters. And sometimes, sadly, they're just rants uh, about other people who have political office. Jason uh, Alton, excuse me, Allen, in his book about Uh, the turnaround of one of the major Baptist seminaries says that every Christian organization, and the church is both an organism and an organization, easily can confuse its convictions, what you believe, with its mission, which is why you exist, and your vision, which is what you're going to try uh, to do. The last thing that Mark wants us to see and that we need to consider is this, is just uh, Jesus is the strong man, and how is it as we follow him that we enter into this spiritual uh, war? Well, we live in a chaotic, turbulent, confusing time. And we also live at a time where the vast majority of churches are either plateaued or they're in uh, decline. And in a large measure, this is so because there is an intense level of spiritual warfare taking place, and the church itself has failed to be watchful uh, in it. Just how do we fight? Well, the New Testament says a great deal to us, and I can only touch on a couple of things. Paul in Ephesians 4 says to us this, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. So if we try to imitate God with our anger, we end up uh, exercising like the devil uh, a, a kind of judgment on people. We become accusers of people instead of bringing to God our anger and working through it in a healthy way. And 
this anger, of course, toward uh, people poisons us with hate and bitterness and ultimately erodes relationships even in the church. James, in chapters 3 and 4, speaks at length about uh, how it is that we battle this, and Paul does there in, in Ephesians. The primary way, one of the two primary ways, is we cultivate virtue. James tells us, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your heart, don't boast. That's pride. And be false to the truth. For the wisdom uh, uh, that comes, uh, for this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see the the beauty of the virtues that James is speaking about? This is how we uh, combat uh, jealousy and selfish ambition and pride. In fact, he he warns in the next chapter, um, he says, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so we submit ourselves to God by putting on Christ-like character. The other way that we battle is in prayer. Now, Monday and Tuesday, the, the body, the larger body that we belong to, the presbytery, had a retreat for its elders and the speaker uh, who was uh, there was from the seminary I graduated from. And he said he started his ministry in Alberta, Canada, 900 miles from the U.S. border north, which is probably very cold uh, there, in in what was a large church that had undergone significant decline. And he started as a uh, youth pastor, and the youth group that once numbered 300 now numbered six. And he said, I just went there and did two things. I preached and we prayed. He preached and then the six uh, people who were there got together and they prayed after, after he preached. They prayed for their friends. Invite, they invited their unchurched, uh, far from God friends to be in the room. And their friends, you see, they weren't smart enough to know they shouldn't pray for them by name. And so their friends would ask, well, why is it you're praying for my salvation? And then they would share the gospel. Uh, with their uh, friends, and many, many of them came to Christ. You know, we love preaching. In fact, we love it so much that we might even uh, misread uh, some of the Bible. In Acts 6, when the apostles talk about their ministry, it's often said they wanted to give themselves to preaching and to prayer. But what Luke tells us is they gave themselves to prayer and then preaching. And we need to ask as a church, do we together pray as much as we listen to sermons? In your own life, do you pray as much as you listen to teaching? You see, this is the reason we are weak. It's not simply we're not putting on virtues. It's that we are not receiving the spiritual power that we need to stand in this uh, conflict. Jesus is the strong one who has come to destroy the works of Satan, 
to set us free from bondage, the bondage of habits and actions which we are powerless against, from our fear, from our slavery, uh, to sin, from captivity to the values of this world, to bring us from darkness into his marvelous light, from uh, bondage to freedom, from death to life. That calls for a response. What do you think of Jesus? What will you do with him? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, be pleased to grant that we each would run to Jesus, that you'd grant in your uh, kindness that if there are any here who've yet to respond to the call of the gospel, that they would respond to the ministry of your spirit this morning, the tug in their hearts, that humble themselves and run to him. Father, quiet any who know you, whose conscience is troubled uh, by foolish words they may have spoken. And Lord, let us experience more of the liberty we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.